Welcome to another Inside OSU podcast. I'm Robin Hearn. Today we're talking about sled dogs. No, you won't be seeing them roaming around Stillwater. One OSU professor took an interest in them when trying to understand a type of exercise asthma that affects athletes competing at high altitudes. Sled dogs burn over 12,000 calories a day while racing. How do they keep up that energy in that environment, and how does this research help people? On this podcast, we'll hear from Dr. Michael Davis, a physiological sciences professor. He sat down with Dr. Kenneth Sewell during the research on TAP series to discuss his research into the metabolic secrets of fatigue resistance in sled dogs. My first attempt at using sled dogs for research subjects was actually a completely different organ system from what we're currently working with. So 20 some odd years ago, um, I was doing a lot of work in the area of exercise-induced asthma. And there's a form of exercise-induced asthma called ski asthma that's very, very common in elite winter athletes, cross-country skiers, ice skaters, people like that. What we needed was a decent animal model, um, and we had been using some laboratory animal models, and they were okay, they weren't great. And when you say animal model, so be able to study this phenomenon in animals, right. what you learn from it, try to... Try to do something, because, you know, humans are a messy bunch, and, uh, you know, they, they, they tend not to be nice and you know similar from one person to another, whereas, you know, laboratory animals are you know, genetically a lot more uh, homogeneous. So it's a lot easier to, to find something without having to use hundreds of subjects. Um, but the, uh, the problem is that we didn't have a good animal model of ski asthma, and it took a little while for me to, as I'm sitting there trying to figure out how to reproduce that phenomenon in the lab, and I finally thought outside the box, and went, well, instead of thinking out in the lab, why not do an animal that does the same thing as a cross-country skier. And so started thinking about sled dogs, and then it was just a matter of trying to figure out the logistics of how to be a faculty member in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and work on, work on sled dogs. We don't have a whole lot of sled dogs around Stillwater, is what uh, you're trying to say? Well, we have more sled dogs than you would think, but really? we don't have a lot of sled dog racing. Okay. No, I would agree <laughs> with that. Know? I mean, we have a lot of dogs, and we have, a, yeah. and, and they're they're really cool dogs. But in order to do racing, you need two things that, well, we don't have. I guess we have a lot of wide open spaces. You need a lot of wide open spaces, and so we could manage that. But you basically need single digit temperatures, and you know we only have that two days out of the year between Christmas and New Year's. So it just really wasn't going to work. So you decided to take the take the show on the road then? It became easier for me to uh, move myself than it was to move the climate to Oklahoma. A couple of plane trips and uh, and a whole lot of carry-on luggage, and uh, and away we go. How'd you get well, into that, that world? The, that's the, not a... Yeah, get, getting into that world was, I was lucky. So about the same time that I'm trying to figure out how to use sled dogs as this model of exercise-induced asthma, um, the sled dog racing community was discovering that they had a fairly serious problem in the form of gastric ulcers, stomach ulcers that would, you know, under, you know, just the right set of circumstances would either make a dog very, very sick or in some cases kill the dog. Now, we're only talking about, you know, if you, if you figure the number of dogs racing 
you know, number in the 20 to 30,000, and you're talking about one or two deaths a year, but one or two deaths was still too many. So they wanted to figure out what was causing stomach ulcers and how to fix it. I wanted to go take a look inside the dog's lungs and it just sort of meshed because in both cases we needed the same So type you're not talking about a quid pro quo because we could be in trouble if we... Well, if we, you know, it, it, uh, it, I don't know. You know, at some levels, quid pro quo is the basis of capitalism. Okay, right. um, You know, I'll give you, I'll give you $4 and you'll give me a beer. Um, you know... Okay, that kind but, of thing. Uh, fair exchange. But, yeah, fair exchange. And, and so, you know, it was basically... If you let me knock your dog out and, and uh, look in its, in its airways, I'll also look in the stomach. So you were doing fairly, you had to, you had to anesthetize them, but you fairly non-invasive kind of work. It, I mean, yeah, we're, it's, it's relatively non-invasive. It was still a huge leap for, oh, for them. I mean, for them you know, to let like you put their dog out. For, for, for you, yeah. know, a, you know, and, and remember, it's somebody who they've never met before. Plus um, this desire to but, make sure yeah, they didn't the, have the gastric But they, they needed... They wanted the information. They needed a solution, and so you know that that helped mitigate the risk. And it turned out very, very well. I mean, in, in all the work that we did, we did find you know what what's causing it, how to prevent it. I mean, we, you know, we we came up with you're talking about the, the, gastric, the gastric ulcers. ulcers. Not we not talking about the asthma here, right? Right. No, I'm sorry. Not 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 the asthma, but the the you know we basically over the course of four or five years worth of studies, we eliminated gastric ulcers as a cause of death in sled dogs. Wow. That buys you a huge amount of credibility. Okay. And, and enabled us to then, you know, it's like, look, we, we really can actually work with your dogs as research subjects, and then you can go run them, and they can go win races. And, and you know, so that was a huge huge thing to be able to then start asking some of the other interesting questions that other people want us to answer. You know, the biggest one being the basic one. How does a dog run 100 to 150 miles in a day and then get up the next morning and do it again over and over and over again for a week and a half without, I mean, they... That's what a race really looks like. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's basically... You know, you have a starting point and you have a finishing point, and the winner is the one that gets to the finishing point first. And what you do in between is, and in a lot of cases, you know, totally up to you and your race strategy, but you got to cover that distance faster than everybody else. The fact that they're able to do it, and we, you know, when we talk about fatigue proofing the dogs, that's not to say that they don't get tired. You know, it's like at the end of a hundred mile run, yeah, they're tired. You give them a meal, you give them a soft place to sleep, you give them six to eight hours of sleep, and they wake up and they're ready to do it again. Fatigued is when you finish that 100-mile run, you give them a soft place to sleep, you give them some food, you wake them up after six to eight hours, and they say, uh-uh, no, no, yeah. <laughs> no, not again, uh-uh. Some dogs do. You know, some dogs, the mushers refer to it as uh, uh, the dog giving you the furry finger. You know, it's just like, no, I'm, not, I'm, I'm curling up, I'm going back to sleep. Um, but the vast majority of the dogs is like, yeah, all right, I'm, I'm fed, I'm rested, let's do it again, let's go. They're dogs. Yeah. So you, you, you can't exactly interview them. 
So no. what, is this what your team is looking at now is some physiological aspects of what's going on with these dogs in, in, in training and in racing? Yeah, what, I mean, what are you looking it, for yeah, right the, now? The, 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 the recipe is pretty straightforward. You, know, you, you take some sort of substrate and oxygen, you move it through, you know, take, eat it, absorb it, get it through the bloodstream, get it into the muscle, burn it, get rid of the waste products. And the whole point of this is, you know, basically doing that process. I, I mean, you and I are sitting here doing that in our cells right now. Pretty slowly for me. Very slowly. Yeah, yeah. They're doing it at 10 to 20 times the rate that we're currently doing it, and they're sustaining that. And so, you know, how is it that you, how is it that you get that, you know, those substrates into them? How do they move them around? How do they, how do they store them? How do they make them available? And, and the biggest thing right now really is how do you get rid of the waste? Hmm. When you look at the chemistry equation, you take glucose and you take oxygen and you put it all together and you burn it and you get CO2 and water. But you also get a tremendous amount of heat. Right. And that heat is the limiting waste product. So you've got to get rid of the heat. The dogs are burning 12,000 calories a day. 12,000 calories. 12,000 calories a day. Six times the basic human metabolic requirement. And so they're a third of our size. Until we talked about this before, I've always thought of Alaskan sled dog racing as temperature being one of the challenges. And for the human, it is. For, for the, the human, for the for the for the dog, it's it must be what actually helps them do what they do. Yeah, I mean the the the, the you have to as a general rule, you have to be down into the single digit temperatures to be able to take your foot off the brake. So, you know when you when you see the dogs when you you know when you go to the start of a race and they're sitting there banging in their harness and they're you know it's taking a dozen people holding the sled back to to keep them from just taking off down the trail before they're their time, um, but once they once they head down the trail like that, they're only going to do that for about 15 to 20 minutes, and then their body temperatures will be in the 108 degree range, and and you got to kind of slow things down a little gotcha. bit. Now, if it's like a lot of times it is where the temperature is hovering in the 20s, you got to slow it down quite a bit. Otherwise, they just overheat. Other, otherwise, yeah. they overheat. Um, when you get into you know, right around zero degrees is the ideal where, you know, the, the, the musher can take the foot off the brake and just let the dogs go. So they're burning it like crazy. Yeah. And the heat and that they're, they're, they're putting out is being perfectly offset by that. Right. Yeah. Just, and they, they can dissipate heat that quickly. You know, you get much colder than that. Um, we've, we've, uh, we've sort of set a rule where we won't start a study at temperatures below minus 30. Below minus 30. Uh, because... <laughs> I, I hate to do anything at yeah, temperatures well, below minus 30. We, we won't start a study below minus 30. We won't continue a study below minus 40. So, you know, there's, there's that little wiggle room where, you know, if we've already started, we may just go ahead and finish it. But there, yeah. there are problems. You know, one of the things that, uh, um, you know, people don't recognize until they get up there is that, you can't draw blood below minus 35. 
hmm. because the blood freezes in the needle. It freezes in the needle before it can move. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like, and I and I had to learn that the hard sure. way. I was sitting there wow. with 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 one of uh, the dogs, and you know, I mean, I can I can feel its vein. The vein is as big around as my finger, sure. and the needles. In, I can't understand why it is that this. I'm not getting the sample, and the dog's just kind of sitting there, just like. Whenever you're done, <laughs> and I finally, I finally figured out uh, after a couple of needles and a whole bunch of tubes that it's like, it's too cold. The blood is freezing inside wow. the needle, yep. and so we, you know, minus 35, you you can't draw a blood sample anymore. You or, I guess technically OSU, has a research facility on site at a kennel of an Iditarod champion in right. Alaska. Right. How, how did that come to be? You know, this is, you know, and, and everybody wants us to be on the cutting edge. Unfortunately, one of the things that cutting edge means is that nobody's ever done this before. So you don't know what you can do. You don't know what you can't do. And most importantly is that nobody's figured out the rules for it yet. Well, so we did uh, about 15 years or, or more of... A lot of federal funding and a lot of studies, very high quality, very scientific studies using essentially other people's dogs. You know, we, we've never purchased a sled dog. We've always, you know, depending on the project, we either have a budget that we can pay them for the use of the dogs. In a lot of cases, we don't have the budget and we're just like, hey, look, you know, let's just kind of Doing work it with by, this. By relationship and, that you've you know, built and, up over and, years. And if we get good pilot data and can get good funding, then we'll be able to pay you for the next one. Um, but it, this was, you know, this was all biomedical research and it was falling under the guides or, or falling under the rules that were written originally for laboratory beagles sitting inside a, a, a you know a, a university laboratory, laboratory yeah. in a nice little stainless steel cage with the temperature between 68 and 72 degrees Fahrenheit and humidity controlled between 45 and 55 percent. Washing the cages uh, at a certain regular cages, intervals and, you know, and, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. And this is not how sled dogs live. <laughs> you know, it's just you make like, them live that way, it doesn't work out so well for it the doesn't, racing. Yeah, the, yeah. For one thing, they can't live that way and actually be racing dogs. Yeah. You also can't produce that uh, terribly easy. But it took a little while, and you know, as, as we're getting more and more press and getting more and more attention to this, some of the folks started going, well, wait a minute, this is all really great, but this doesn't, this isn't according to the rules that were written that you're supposed to be following and tried negotiating and, and eventually they just, you know, the, the regulatory authorities just said, no, you got to stop. And it's like, well, but if we stop, then, well, then we stop. We, we haven't lose we, all this. Yeah, we lose all this, we lose the potential and, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to build our own facility that meets USDA regulations but build it with a sled dog in mind. And so, you know, we have a facility where we can take the dogs in and we can, you know, it's nice and sterile and we can clean it and we can make sure everything is meeting as many of the regulations as you can meet while still acting in the best interest of the dog. So do we keep it at 70 degrees? No, because we can document why that's not in the dog's best interest. And 
and the regulations were never intended to act against the dog, animal's best interest. So as long as we can make that argument, then the regulators say, well, you know, okay, you've, you've demonstrated that the dog needs to be at very cold temperatures because it's got a very thick coat and it's acclimated to that and, and it'll be okay and it actually kind of likes it a lot better than if you were able to bring them into 70 degrees. It took a little bit of finesse, but it's, it's a heck of a facility. So all of our uh, folks here that are responsible for inspecting our own research facilities every six months always vie for the, the, the yeah. chance to get I mean, on the it, list and, it, it, and uh, go up you know, and do the inspection. I mean, that, there, they hate it no, when I tell them that at least once a year you can do it by video. Yeah, I mean, like the, you know, there, there's, there, there's a requirement to inspect it twice a year. Um, there's no interest, there's no dog's interest that says, no, we don't have to inspect it. The dog doesn't care. So, yeah, it's going to get inspected, which means that you have to go 4,000 miles to, you know, rural Alaska. Um, you know, you can pick and choose what month, that said. Um, you know, we don't usually inspect it in the 40 below. No, zone. no, yeah. I've noticed that the inspections almost never occur in January. Um, they, they tend to occur during salmon season. Uh, <laughs> I have noticed that also. Yeah. You know, now, you mentioned in your first trip up, get on an airplane, all this carry-on luggage. Um, so when I envisioned you and your students going up, you know, you're probably flying coach and all that, but you're, Absolutely. you know, but, but, uh, yeah, so, but help me think of a day in the life. So you've got your students here at Stillwater and you're, you're you've planned well, your study. Now it's time to go. Give me a day in the life of, uh, so, so the day in the life actually starts with, you know, a couple months ahead of time. One of the things that we figured out pretty quickly was that you have to think of everything ahead of time. You get up there and, you know, it's like, oh, darn, you know, I don't have this test tube or that gauge or whatever, and just run over to the lab next door and get it. No, no, you, you have to think of lab everything. Lab next door is a moose processing facility. Yeah, exactly. And so, so you overpack. I mean, you vastly overpack because, you know, you can't get up there and not have something that you absolutely have to have, which means that you're, you know, you're hitting the United ticket counter with, you know, a half a dozen of these giant plastic crates that you're checking as additional luggage and, and they're going to ask you what's in it. And, you know, and you got to try to explain to them what's in it. And sometimes they, they start waving for TSA to come over and like, and, and sometimes they just say, absolutely not. Um, the biggest challenges have been um, preserving the samples. Mm. So, you know, you get the samples, you spin them down and all, and, and you got to freeze them, but you can't transport them. Can't transport them in a minus 80, most no, likely. Yeah. But as it turns out, you can transport them in liquid nitrogen. So we have liquid nitrogen shippers and, and convincing the airlines that that's okay. That that's okay to put those in the hole. That, yeah. that, you know, we've, in fact, uh, one of the, uh, it wasn't me, but one of our uh, other faculty members actually did spend time in, in uh, you, know, you know how they say, we're not arresting you, we're just detaining you for a while. Well, one of our other faculty members was detained at the airport in Wichita, uh, Wichita Falls. Uh, or not Wichita Falls, Wichita, Wichita Kansas, Kansas. Um, because he kept insisting that it was okay to take on the airplane. And, and you know, I, he was on the phone with me, and, and, uh, and I heard the, uh, the uh, police officer tell him to put the phone down and turn around. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, we got to figure out another way of getting that stuff up there. 
Um, but you know, once you get up there, you know, it, it's every day you're up there, it's costing you money. Sure. And you know, so if you, you know, for example, you know, the really, really cool metabolic stuff starts to develop after about three or four days of exercise, which means, you know, you've got to plot out three, you know, five days of exercise plus a day of travel, plus a day of setup, plus a day to wrap up, and plus another day of travel. And so, you know, the simplest study, you're looking at a week and a half already. So are you actually exercising the dogs, or, or no. you're bringing them in after I, 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 a training you know, run? Right, yeah. So, so we hire a musher to, to run the dogs, and we're processing samples and all. But, you know, it's, you try to make the most out of this. Sure. And so, you know, like we had a study... Uh, um, uh, in 2004, where we ran um, three teams of, of uh, 16 dogs apiece, and every time the dogs came back from a run, we had to draw blood and we had to do this, that, and the other thing and process it all, and and then they'd go out again. And I remember after the first day, 48 dogs and 48 samples and all that sort of stuff. By the time we got finished processing everything, somebody looked at our watch and and discovered. You know, we had been at it for 22 hours, and the team was due. You know, first team was due back in two hours. I mean, none of us had had any sleep. None of us had anything to eat. We had just—I mean, it had just been solid sample processing. And now you've got two hours. You can either go to the bathroom, eat, eat, or take a nap. Yeah. But you only get one of those, (laughs) (laughs) and then it's time to go to work again. Wow. And, And it did that for five consecutive days. I mean, we were, we were, we were absolutely exhausted. Wow. We try not to schedule them like that as much. So this, so this isn't about making our dogs fatigue proof. It's making your research oh assistants I mean, fatigue you know, proof. But, uh, you know, we, we, uh, it is, I mean, it, it is an enormous amount of work because we are trying to do as much as we can with the finite amount of budget. We occasionally have fun, you know, but, but I mean, it, it, a lot of times, you know, that, that one study, um, we were doing it the second week of January. We had, you know, a couple of hours of daylight, but we were also at the base of uh, Denali, and so you know, not a bad The view sun when, comes when the up for up. a couple of hours, and you walk outside, and you've got a view that people pay thousands and thousands of dollars to see. And we just walk out there and just, huh, yeah, okay. And then you back go back work. in because the centrifuge dinged, and it's you know, it's, you're ready to start pulling samples again. But, you know, it, it's a different kind of fun. Yeah. So, so what have you learned either to make our dogs fatigue-proof or maybe that's applicable to, to other organisms and non-athletic animals like the one sitting here? Yeah, in I mean, it's, you know, in all likelihood, what we are learning will eventually become relevant to humans because a dog starts out just like us and they're a little bit more adaptable and and they're not they're not the ones that are sitting there going well why do i have to keep running stairs like that the bottom line is is that uh, we figured out that there are the 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 handful of um choke points in the entire process there are ways around them so one of the big choke, choke points in that in, in that whole metabolic to, yeah, yeah, process. Yeah. So one of the choke points is being able to actually get glucose for you know glucose and fatty acids, but basically the substrates into the muscle cell. It's a huge thing. When you develop diabetes, 
part of the problem with diabetes is that you're not getting the stuff into the muscle cells like they should. So, you know, we've discovered that we have the same transporters that the dogs have. The dog, you, you can get a certain amount of exercise out of the dogs using those transporters. And then they hit a wall. Well, then you have to figure out a no, new way of doing it. What we found is that, yeah, the dogs just say, well, you know, we've gotten as much out of GLUT4 as we can. We're now going to do some, something different. You know, we're going right. to do something different at the cellular level, and it translates to more exercise. Gotcha. We have all those same switches. We know that you know, running a dog uh, 150 miles a day for five consecutive days will turn on those switches. We don't know how hard you have to run a human to, to get turn that on same those switches, but that switch is there, and so it can be turned on. Same thing going at you know the the, uh, um, the tolerance to heat. I mean, one of the ways that uh, they they manage the heat is by simply developing enough tolerance in their body to that huge amount of heat buildup. You know, if 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 you were to put your dog in in a car in the Walmart parking lot in the middle of the summer and leave the windows up and it's a, you know rapidly going to overheat, you take them to the, your veterinarian and the dog's got a temperature of 108, and you know he's suffering from heat stroke. These dogs will maintain a temperature of 108 for hours at a time while running, without any heat stroke, because you know now if you took them in the middle of the summer when they're totally out of shape and did the same thing with the vehicle in the in the parking lot yeah they're going to heat stroke they're still dogs so they but it's a, a tolerance but, kind of framework but part they, of that yeah. training allows their body to become tolerant to you know to to all that heat so you know one way of of figuring out how to get rid of all that excess heat is to make it not important to get rid of it you know you can just go ahead and store it for a while and get rid of right. it when you stop running right and uh, and you know they their conditioning has taught their body to do that as an alternative to having to sit there and constantly pant to get rid of the heat. What's in the future for this work? What, what more is there to learn from elite canine athletes? Well, I, we, we haven't quite figured out everything yet. We do still need to figure out a few things about how you know the how they move substrates around and 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 overall just sort of metabolically how they were you know what exactly is the stimulus that they're responding to at a cellular level at a cellular level yeah i mean you know obviously the the you know running is the the sort of macroscopic but thing. what's triggering the adaptations what's that, triggering that make and these what's what's the initial trigger because that's really the shortcut you know, if you can figure out what the trigger is, then it's entirely possible that you don't have to spend, you know, all that time. A hundred miles of running. Yeah, to, in to, order to, to trigger it. Okay. And because, I mean, let's face it, you know, if, particularly if we're going to translate this to humans, we all have better things to do than just kind of sit there and, you know, run around the, the fields for, you know, six to 12 hours a day. Need to figure out what that stimulus is so that we can shorten it down. Now, you know, a lot of people would love to just say, well, we can put it in a pill. Yeah, so I can sit on my couch and right. you know, watch the, a football wash game. It down, and, you know, yeah, wash wash, it down wash your a, training down with yeah. a beer and, and, yeah. and away we go. 
Uh, yeah, you know, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm not necessarily against but that. But you're still, still looking for some of those, think it's those metabolic triggers. Yeah. That, yeah, so looking at the metabolic triggers and, and then, you know, just from a purely, uh, you know, I have a feeling it's, it's going to be more important to me than to a lot of other people. But the dogs right now, through, you know, a little bit of intuition and through a little bit of practice and decades and decades of just work, you know, they're kind of at a, at a physiological maximum right now. And interestingly, one of the maximums, you know, I mentioned the fact that they're, they're uh, burning 12,000 calories a day. Well, in order to burn 12,000 calories a day, you have to eat 12,000 calories a day. Otherwise, you, you go away. Getting a dog to eat 12,000 calories is not as easy as it sounds, at least not over and over again. You know, your, your, your average dog, if you leave a bowl of pasta out there, you know, they'll scarf it up today and maybe even tomorrow. But after a while, they're going to go, no, nah, I, don't, I don't want it anymore. So, you know, one of the things that's going to be a challenge is what is currently limiting them? Okay. And how do we make that, you know, how do we push that? So you boundary? talked about that kind of on the, on the, uh, Elimination of waste, yeah. but also the intake of the calories. Yeah, I, I mean, is and, a, and, and, it's, and it's the practical, practical aspects of it. And there, and there are some really cool things that they're doing. You know, right now, in order to get 12,000 calories into a dog, you pretty much have to feed them a diet that's nearly 70% fat because you to just need to have it. Appealing enough and able to. Well, appealing enough, but also just a small enough volume. Oh, because I mean, you are still talking about a 25 kilogram dog with a stomach that's about the size of a softball. So, you know, packing that volume in, it's got to be fat. But the dog doesn't want to burn fat. The dog actually would, perform, would prefer to burn glucose. So one of the things that we don't know what's going on is how are they converting, you know, I mean, we are talking literally eight to 9,000 calories a day of dietary fat converting to glucose. into something that their muscle will burn. Let's face it, if we, if we want to, to, uh, to solve obesity problem, you know, being able to burn fat as something other than fat is going to be a whole lot more effective than having to burn it as fat because it's, you know, right. metabolically, we are really, really good at converting excess carbs to fat. We don't convert fat back to anything other than it stays fat until you burn it. If we can figure out how the dogs are managing that, That'll, you know, that'll be huge. And it'll, I mean, that'll, it'll open up some, some checkbooks oh, for, yeah. <laughs> for research. I mean, yeah. it's like, yes, we would love to know how to do that. Right. But, you know, I just, I, I, I've been doing it because I just think that watching an athlete do something that they are very, very good at doing is, I mean, that's, that's the enjoyment I get. They are premium, you know, elite athletes but I'd love to see if I could make them just a little bit better than that. You know, so, you know, uh, you're mentioning uh, Musher that we have uh, our lab at, Martin Boozer. Martin was the first Musher to finish Iditarod in under nine days. Under nine days. Under nine days. He did that in 2002. The next person to finish it in under nine days was nearly a decade later. And so far, I think maybe 10 people have finished the race in under nine days. You know, everybody thought for such a long time, there's no way anybody can finish it in less than nine days. It's the four minute mile Martin, barrier. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yep. 
Um, but now that there have been so many instances where people have finished it in under nine days, now you start thinking, Ooh, what about is, is eight? eight possible? <laughs> you know, what about yeah. eight? You know, could you could you figure out how to complete that race in under eight days? I mean, it's not that big of a deal. It's not you know gonna gonna solve world peace or anything but like if, that. But if if figuring that out also but has these other knock-on effects, yeah, for human but health, it, and but other it would things. just be cool. It would just be cool. <laughs> you know? Thank you to Dr. Davis for sitting down with Dr. Sewell for the OSU Research on Tap series hosted at the Iron Monk Brewery the third Monday of every month. That's it from this week's Inside OSU podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. I'm Robin Hearn. Thanks for listening.